What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Mentor Me podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Hall, and today I had the opportunity to sit down with Paul Angoni, who is an author and speaker, mainly towards uh, questions that you have in your 20s and 30s. When you're young, you're kind of figuring out your career. You've probably moved like three or four times. You don't know what your dream job is, and you just have a lot of questions. So I had the opportunity to sit down with him and ask him about his journey and also just learn more about the questions we should be asking in our 20s. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's been different for every book. So like the first book, I mean, it's a wild story. So the first book that I started writing for years and years and got rejected by every publisher around mm-hmm. is not the first book that got published. So I worked on that book for off and on for like nine years. Wow. But then I had one blog, ar- blog article take off called 21 Secrets Your 20s. And that's, you know, it's a long story. I was 10 years in and trying to start a website and all this stuff. But I blog, uh, 21 Secrets Your 20s took off. And then I connected with a publisher and they're like, hey, I gave them my book I'd been working on. And they're like, no, we don't like that. That's too raw. It's not a good fit for mm-hmm. us. Can you think of something else? So I'm like, well, how about we turn the blog article into a book? We'll make it 101 Secret Your 20s because it's building kind of its own brand, its own momentum. And, uh, and they're like, great. I love that. Can you get it to us in a month? And I'm like, <laughs> sure, I can write that book in a month. No problem. No um, way. And I was working full time in marketing. I had two kids, a wife. So it was basically like basically my family left for a month. And uh, I just worked and then wrote the book every second I could. So, so that's kind of a, a long answer to say that that book, I had a month deadline, but I also had all those blo- all the blo- blogs I'd written a bunch of stuff that became part of the book. Sure. So, so like half of it was stuff I'd been writing again over years and years. And then the other half was stuff I just wrote in that month. Got it. So, Got it. That makes sense. So anyway, but, but the normal, I mean, the normal thing is maybe about a year, year and a half, Okay. For me, kind of off and on, um, going back and forth, working on a book. It just kind of depends. What originally sparked your interest? It sounds like, you know, you had this interest of writing books. What originally sparked your interest? Did you know you wanted to do that at some point? Um, no, no, I had no idea. I had no clue. It was really birthed out of me being in a hotel room, traveling for a job. Yeah. Asking these questions of what do I do with my life? <laughs> this is not how I envisioned it. This is not how I thought it would be. Yeah. And, and literally just opening up my laptop and being like, uh, I'm, I got, it was almost like therapeutic. It was almost like me just having to put these thoughts and put words down, like define what I was thinking and going through just these feelings yeah. of frustration. So that's where it started. And then as it grew and grew and I started talking to more and more friends and being kind of the friend that would be like, you know what, I'm struggling. And are yeah. you guys struggling? Like this doesn't, who, who knows the answers? And mm-hmm. or this friend's moving back in with their parents and they're depressed. This parent, you know, friend is um, really struggling with depression and, mm-hmm. and you know, and um, going from there, just feeling like, wow, there's something here. This is what I'm writing about. This, this yeah. is what I'm feeling. I think I'm tapping into something. Yeah. So that's really kind of birthed out of this organic state of this is really important to me. And I feel like, and then I was looking for those books, like, well, who's writing, who's, I need help. It was more yeah. like, I need help. Yeah. I couldn't really find books that 
identified with the struggle that I was feeling. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I, I just, I, I should be the one that writes it, you know? Sure. Um, That's but awesome. then it was trying to publishers uh, along the way that that was a good idea, which they didn't think was a good idea <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is crazy now because, you know, you look on the shelves and you're right. There aren't a lot of books of helping 20 year olds. I, yeah. I can, when I came across your books, I could think of Meg Jay's book and, and your books. And that's, yeah. that's kind of all I can think of. Yeah. So, yeah. There's, there's becoming more and more like we've proven kind of that there's a market in a way. Yeah. Uh, that there's a need. Uh, but it took, took a long time to, to do that. Uh, but yeah, that's how it started. I never once thought I never had this dream of, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an author. I could write a book. I, I never even thought that I could have that capability Uh, so, so it's still wild to me that I have four, four books now. I mean, it just seems strange. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Like, so you talked about, um, your friends and they were kind of all going through the same thing. I don't know when you met your wife, but have you pulled from your wife and your friends a lot of, um, not a lot of some of the content in your books and questions in your books, have you gauged that engage them to see what questions they have or how have you gone about uh has it all been your questions um yeah you know so i've been doing you know i like i said i've been doing this for over a decade now yeah so through my website so i started my website out of my master's program and i was doing a lot of research and studying about emerging adulthood and what is this generation going through and how is it different and how is it the same as previous yeah. generation so i was doing kind of research through the master's program but then once the website got launched and, and stuff started taking off, a lot of the, the research was people emailing me. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, there was a time where there's so many 20-somethings were, were coming out and emailing me and saying, hey, I just read your article. Thank you. I, I felt like I was the only one. I felt like I was the only one struggling. Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. So then that started becoming this process, almost a research process. Mm-hmm. But mainly it was just trying to help people and yeah. answering their questions and, and hearing what they were going through. So, yeah, so some of it is my own friends and personal conversations. And definitely my wife has been a huge part of the whole journey. I mean, she, she edits everything I write mm. before any publisher sees it. It's me and her hashing yeah. it out and going back and forth and editing it. You know, um, so she's edited every book. Uh, but, but yeah, so it's been a mixture. It's been a mixture of, of people coming through my website, through social media, and then also friends and my wife and yeah, trying to get to the heart of what is truly important. What matters? What are, what are the questions we need to be asking? What are the lies yeah. that I feel like are the biggest stumbling blocks that this generation is believing? Yeah, no, that's so cool. Yeah. And I think you hit something on the head too, where everyone's scared to admit they have questions in their twenties. They're kind of taught in school just to like roll with it, fight through it, <laughs> work, yep. work your tail off. If, even if you hate your life, like just keep working. Yep. And uh, so I think you opened up this um, unexposed area where people can now say, Oh, you have that too. Like I, yeah. that way. And, yeah. and like, it's freed people up to, to totally. be like, okay other people have this question. I'm not alone. That's the yep. important thing. They're not alone. It's exactly this. And, and what's been wild. And I've been talking to people about this recently is even seeing that go to different countries. So seeing yeah. my books translated into Russia and Thailand and India and these places, and especially Iran, 
which has been the wildest story of all because they were bootlegged copies. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not making any or anything. They just, but that that's how it kind of has to work because okay. it was sanctioned deal from the U S to Iran for copyright issues and stuff. So my books go to Iran and now, I mean, probably my most passionate fans who I love interacting with the most are all from Iran. And so now you have a 23 year old in Iran, a female who's emailing me that they are, you know, finding hope and finding truth, finding mm. encouragement through this book, you know, through my book, 101 questions you need to ask in your twenties or 101 secrets for your twenties. So that's mind blowing to me, right? That, that I could write something that I have no experience living in these countries, yeah. but I'm touching on something that we're all going through. You know, we're all searching for purpose. We're all searching for hope. We're all searching for meaning. We're all, we all have doubts, insecurities, fears. Yeah. And so you're right. It's kind of opening up that permission to say, hey, we're all in this together, even across borders, across oceans. Like there's no culture. There's no ethnicity. There's nothing that says like this is who should be wrestling with this. It's it's humanity. Right. Right. But to have that connection to say, hey, uh, you know, and that's how we connect. You know, I've said it before, but we don't connect over our pretend perfection. We connect over our shared struggle. Mm, of that. That's good. You know, and, and that's why the you know, even you saw the Me Too movement take hold, and and because that was a powerful phrase, it was Me Too. Yeah. Like, oh, you too, oh, me too. Uh, um, and and there is so much life and freedom to that. For sure. Instead of the email that I get the most is I feel so alone, which that to me is insane that we could have a globally connected, instantly connected generation all over the world, and yet we all still feel so alone. Yeah. And it's like, well, what, that's a problem. Like what's going on there <laughs> that we can talk with anybody. We can talk with our childhood best friend uh, through whatever app we choose right away. And yet we're not really talking. And yeah. it's almost like we're hiding in plain sight mm. uh, through social media. We're not really being, we're being seen, but we're not really being known. Yeah. And, and that's a big problem. Yeah. I'm sure through COVID you've, you've gotten a lot of like questions and just people being lonely because that connection has even dwindled further. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, I've been seeing it even firsthand, not, not me personally, but um, people that I know who are living alone right now. And once mm -hmm. things got shut down, they, you know, it's, it's half COVID it's half, them not taking initiative to, mm -hmm. um, and finding a community, but yeah. you know, they have now become super lonely and, and kind of, they were super involved at, at some point in community. And mm -hmm. just once this happened, kind of abandoned it. And yeah. now it's just sad, you know, you want to see that come back for people and you want to see them thrive in a, in a community and feel welcome in a community. So that's, yeah. like, that's what I'm, like on the lookout for extra heavily yeah. in the past. It's been going on for a year, but especially in the past month, I've been seeing yeah. it around me and, uh, and hearing about it around me. And so it's like, I'm sure you're getting, you know, swarmed with emails like, that. yeah, you know, and I'm almost hoping that that is a benefit that we see come out of this. It was, you know, we're all addicted to technology. And I talk about it in my new book, my 25 lies book, I call it obsessive connection disorder, how we are obsessed with connecting all the time. We have to be on our phone and we're all addicted. Yeah. I mean, pretty much all of us are addicted to our phone, addicted to social sure. media. We're spending way too much time on all this stuff. So it was almost like 
here, here's your addiction. And that's all you get. Like here's technology. And that's all you get. You can't see people. You can't go to coffee. I'm going to give you, it's like God saying here, I'm going to give you guys all what you, what you've been addicted to for so long. And so I'm hoping the benefit is like what you were saying, we're going to see the swing of people that are so sick of that being their own connecting point. They're going to be like coffee face to face where I can look at somebody like that's going to be this radical thing that I want to do (laughs) in a men's group. Yeah. Um, I talk about that in my book, uh, the new, the new book too, of, of sitting in the circle with men every Wednesday morning. And we all talk about what we're going through and our struggles and our doubts. And, and maybe we're reading something together and, and it's just a real honest time. Like there's a lot of trust there Yep. and uh, to, to know and to be known, it, it, it changes my whole week. You know, it makes me feel like I'm not the only one going through things. I'm not alone. I have a place to share things. Um, I can get wisdom from other people. And, and again, I think we've lost that really as a culture to know and to be known because we are behind so many screens. We're behind so many filters. We're behind so many amazing updates about, you know, LOL, my life is so great um, that we're all faking all the time, you know? And so I think I'm hoping that that becomes a benefit what you described basically. For sure. Yeah. I I was actually going to ask you about social media and your view on it. And, uh, because I'm sure 20 somethings like the comparison game, seeing people at this level of a job or traveling here, traveling there, having kids, having a fan, you know, all those things probably take a toll on you, whether you recognize it at that time or not, because yeah. when I'm like going through social media, I always say to myself, well, I'm not really comparing, but I am. Mm-hmm. I'm just not, mm-hmm. I'm just not like recognizing it in that yeah, moment. You know, I, I typically, I mean, I asked this question in my new book, like, how many of us go on social media for 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever, how much, how much time, how many of us leave that experience and are thinking to ourselves, I feel so much better about my life. Like, I feel great. Like I'm ready to go. I feel energetic. I feel, I have all these ideas. Uh, yeah. I'm ready to work out. I'm like, I, I don't think many of us leave that experience and feel that way. I think it's the opposite, right? Where it's I like, agree. like, like, Oh man, they're, oh man, they got that promotion and look at me, I'm struggling or they got married and I I'm, I'm struggling cause I'm not getting married or they finally had a kid. I can't have kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, and all those feelings, you know, I describe it. I put it in this metaphor too, of you used to have to go to your 10 year reunion, right? High school, college to look everybody up and down, uh, to see who's doing better than whom. Right. Just, yeah. Just fake it for one night like rent the BMW, lose some weight, get it to <laughs> whatever it took. You just had to fake it for one night to prove to everybody that you're somebody. And then you could go back to your real life after that yeah. night. And now we're trying to pull off that same phenomenon every day with every post. And it is exhausting. And it's just sucking, I think, our soul out to constantly feel like we're having to put up this. It's like we're all stars in our own reality show, right? And we're right. all trying to put up facade of whatever the reality show that we're trying to portray. And then, and and then it's like, almost it's like a movie star coming back and saying, well, if only they could see my real life, if they only see me off stage, you know? Um, And I think that's a huge problem. And I think that is affecting us in a, in a huge way. For sure. That's so interesting. I've never heard it put that way. Uh, But I agree with you. Instead of pretending for one night, you're pretending for unlimited amount of time that up and it's it's impossible to keep that up and not be your true self and feel 
connected to people because you're not being yourself. You're not being vulnerable. You're lying about maybe the work stress you have or the health issues around you and, and things like that. So it's like you put up this facade and, and it's, yeah, it's a, that's a tricky thing. Well, yeah. I'm curious to, to hear about, you know, the start of your career and how you found yeah. your path uh, to what you're doing now. So tell me yeah. a little bit about a younger you as you, you had come out of college and it sounds like you got your master's and, and kind of plugged right into what you're doing now. How did you find that? How did you find oh, out man. you wanted to do this? Well, first of all, that definitely, what you described was definitely not the case. I mean, I <laughs> was a failure. I mean, I crashed and burned after college just because I felt like I, I was just felt like I was failing and everybody again was more successful than me. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a windy, windy road of picking up odd jobs. You know, I, I worked at a call center in LA, uh, with people yelling at me eight hours a day with all their problems. Um, I, I interviewed to teach Korean students how to take the SAT, uh, in LA and, uh, and I was, I didn't know Korean and I was terrible at the SAT, but it was just like, I had to find, try to find a job somewhere, you know? Uh, it, it was a real windy path and it was a struggle. I mean, it was a real struggle, but, but that's where that passion came out of, of writing about it and talking about it and feeling like, man, there's something here because this is so incredibly hard. And like, who has the answers? Who can, you know, I, I, I talk about feeling like I was, um, if you if you remember the child book, Are You My Mother? It was this little bird who's walking around because he's fallen out of his nest and he's asking everybody, are you the dog and the cow and the chicken? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? I remember feeling like I was that bird, but I was walking around to asking everybody like, are you my life? Like, is this my life? Is this my home? Like, is this the place that's going to feel normal again? Like somebody must know. Uh, and then I start feeling like I'm not even the bird. I'm just the egg. Like I'm still the egg and I feel like I'm ready to crack at any second. Uh, so even on my website right now and, and throughout this whole journey for me, I've always used eggs. Like I have stop motion videos with eggs. I have pictures with these eggs with faces on them just because that was my metaphor of how I felt for many years. Like I just felt as fragile as an egg. So I, I say all that to put it in context, like that, that was my motivation and passion was through my personal pain and problems that I was going through. Mm. And, and, and I think that becomes the powerful place for many of us when we tap into some of that. Instead of running away from our problems or pain, instead of medicating ourselves from our problems and pain, it's kind of facing it head on and saying, what do I do with this? How do I, how do I heal from this? But also maybe how do I help other people through this? And I think that's where the biggest, that's people that make the biggest impact, the biggest game changers, life changers are usually people that have tapped into something that is so deeply personal to them and they want to help other people because they know what it's like to go through that. Yeah, I agree. I recently just heard someone say, you know, <clears throat> when you're in your darkest moments is actually when you should be <laughs> like writing the most, like writing down how you feel, what's going on, because it kind of helps you recognize the frustration you feel. And so was mm -hmm. the frustration you were feeling, was it, was it, yeah, I have this degree, but what the heck am I supposed to do? Like, am I supposed to go and find a job that I'm going to hate? Or it sounds like, I, I think a lot of times you come out of college and your two options are 
pursue what I love and make zero money or, yeah. or go do something I don't enjoy and make good money. Is that what yeah. you were feeling? Were you at that crossroads a little bit? Yeah, I was definitely. I think you described it well. Just, you know, I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. I want my life to mean something to somebody. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to make a living. I'd like to get married um, and not have my wife be my sugar mama, you know, which, <laughs> which she was the first year of my marriage. Don't be, don't get me wrong. I was, I was a struggling unemployed author and she was a financial advisor. Um <laughs> which is not how I pictured getting married. And it wasn't how she got was picturing getting married either, but that was yeah. the, the reality. Um, yeah, it was all those questions. It was just, ha I, again, ha trying to find that place again, that feels like home, you know, and, and it feels like such a, you're just like a transient decade of your life where you're just moving around so much, moving to different jobs, moving to different places, different friendships, and just trying to feel like a place that feels like a good fit. Yeah. And I think that's where those questions, that angst, that frustration. And then, yeah, how do you find your passion? Cause we would talk about it all the time, like find your passion, find your purpose. But that's when I started talking, you know, realizing it was, it's like, it's through your problems. It's through your failure. Like if you fail miserably at something and then you, the next day you want to try it again, well, you're passionate about something. Like you just found it, you know, when instead I think we look at it the other way, it's like, well, if you found great success, if everybody's applauding you, well, then you found your passion. It's like, no, you just found like you could be a one hit wonder Yeah. Uh, because you found success, but, but then you crash and burn because you actually had no foundation to hold any of it. Yeah. So today, you know, fast forward to today, now you're speaking in front of large audiences. You have four books now, all based on helping twenties and 30 year olds. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of answer questions about their life and just kind of help them get on the path that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you also help generations, different generations communicate and, and work together because there's that cultural difference. There's the, I mean, even the difference in language, you know, between mm -hmm. different generations. Mm -hmm. Um, so how did you recognize that gap between the generations and, and how did you add that together uh, with what you originally found out, which was helping younger, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And it's even a good example of like, you start pursuing something that you think is important and you don't know like what's around the bend. You don't know what's step three. Like you're just taking step one and you're taking step two, but you're doing it as best you can because yeah. it's really meaningful to you. And then, yeah, all of a sudden things happen. You know, these opportunities come, these people come, uh, things that you could have never imagined. And that's kind of been my case. You know, I didn't set out strategically to like leverage my research and writing. I was doing just to, cause I wanted to help hurting and broken 20 somethings into like, Oh, well that'll naturally lead me to be also a corporate speaker speaking to leaders from across the world. I'm not that strategic of a businessman or anything to figure something like that out, you know, but it was just that natural progression of, of getting these puzzle pieces, like getting a master's in organizational leadership, which I wasn't even sure at the time, why am I doing this? It felt like, it just felt like the step I should take. Mm. And then um, as I'm writing and doing research, all of a sudden somebody from Goldman Sachs reaches out to me from HR and they're like, Hey, can you come speak to our young associates or young, our young people that are, cause they're leaving they're, We can't retain them. Yeah. And you seem to understand them. And I'm like, 
I mean, I, at first I thought it was like, is this a joke? Like, is this spam? Did somebody get a golden? <laughs> like, why is Goldman Sachs reaching out to me? It was because one of the HR people had read um, my book, 101 Secrets to Your 20s. And they just felt like, man, this guy really gets, gets them. Yeah. Um, so then it, it's progressed from in, in that. And then, yeah, I started doing a lot more research and studying how do we kind of be in that middleman of sorts? How do I bring generations together? Because I feel I, I hear the leaders and what they're frustrated with, especially with all the stereotypes about millennials. Oh, yeah. And then I hear millennials and Gen Z, too, now of all their things they're struggling with, with yeah. leaders and leadership dynamics. And uh, I don't feel like this is home for me. I feel like I'm an outcast in a way. So trying to bring that group together and, and move away from the stereotypes, which which is so funny to me in a way that um, in our culture, especially now, like we're very careful to stereotype or generalize based on anything, right? Like right. you can get big trouble right. if you're going to throw out a stereotype. Yet, if you throw out a stereotype about a millennial or now a Gen Z, like you got a front page article on Times, like everybody's going to be interviewing you because you researched like a hundred millennials. And now you're saying, here's who they are. Here's who these 90 million people are. Right. Um, I figured out like they're this box of cereal that you can just read the label and say, oh yeah, that's who they are. So yeah. I try to break that down and let's, let's get to a, again, a common place uh, when I'm doing those talks too. Yeah. What do you see? Um, you mentioned going to speak to Goldman Sachs. What did you, what do you recognize that companies are most frustrated with, uh, with millennials. Where is the yeah. gap? What do they not, what do they not understand about millennials? Where is that gap, and what are they missing? Yeah, one thing I do, I kind of trick, I kind of trick my audience, which is a really helpful exercise, especially when I'm in a room full of Gen X and Boomers, and they're usually pretty <laughs> frustrated with millennials and Gen Z in a way. Yeah, uh, but I'll throw up on the um, on my screen. I'll put uh, entitled, narcissistic, self-absorbed think they know and can do anything. Uh, I put that on a board and I say, okay, break up into a small group and I want you guys to talk through your experience with millennials and these terms, yeah. right? Uh, because this is what we hear all the time. And so the room gets real loud. Like people get real fired up. They're talking with their <laughs> hands. Like it's, it's like I'm a middle school teacher trying to like rein the class back in, you know? Like it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I bring them back in after they get, after they go off, you know, they're going off. And then I say, you know, actually I, I, I tricked you guys and I press a button. And then on my screen, all those words stay there entitled narcissistic, self-absorbed, but it switches from millennials to a 1970s essay called the me decade. And it's written about boomers when they were in their twenties. Really? And, uh, and that's a real good moment because all of a sudden it just flips the script and it kind of puts people back in the place of, oh, yeah, I kind of was arrogant at 22. I thought I had, I had it all figured out at 25 or um, I was very entitled. I wouldn't listen to my parents at 23 and their advice, you know. Yeah. And so I do think through bringing those kind of experiences, we realize, yes, there are generational differences. We've all grown up uh, right. in a different point in history. But there is a lot of similarities between uh, generations with being young and confused and having those moments where you thought you had it all figured out and then you realize you don't. Yeah. And, and that becomes a relatable moment to where we can all talk about that together. Yeah. I, I agree with that. You come out of college and 
everyone has these high dreams of what they're going to achieve and they don't want anyone to tell them they're wrong or, or it might yeah. be different than what you picture. And so you come in and you kind of are this, you know, cocky, maybe a little bit, um, yeah, ignorant of what's going on around yeah. you and, and probably not the best listener, to be honest. Which was totally me. I mean, then that's Same. why I can relate to that because, and that's why I crash so hard because those lofty expectations or dreams or those ideals of who I was when it crashed, it crashed hard. Yeah. And I, and I had that humbling experience for years of, wow, I don't even know what I don't know at this point. And, and that's a scary, it's a scary place. It's a humbling place. And it's those crossroad moments in life, right? Where we then figure right. out, okay, wh- where am I going to go with this? Which way? Yeah. Uh, and I, and that, again, that's again, why I'm so passionate about this decade, because I feel like it's that crossroad moment in many of our lives. Yeah. Uh, so instead of waiting till I'm 60 and retired, and then I'll ask myself questions about, Hey, what did I really want to do with my life? Um, I, I get excited when this generation is asking themselves hard questions at 25. Yeah. Like I think we all should be asking ourselves hard questions at no matter the age. Uh, so I think it's a good thing, but then it's uh, figuring out, yeah, what do I do with that? Once I start right. asking myself a question. Right. Right. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I think millennials are asking good questions and just like any generation, I think you have good millennials, bad millennials, media, you know, average millennials who some just don't want to work. They'll use the excuse of, ah, oh, it's just not what I want to do, but they don't really, you know, they might not be fired up about anything. Whereas on the other end, and this is every generation, you know, you probably have good boomers, bad boomers that I'm talking about work specifically. Yeah. Um, but when it does come to millennials, it seems like they want to be very purpose driven in the work that they do. They want to know what they're doing is making a difference. And is that what you saw when, you know, there was that gap between millennials wanted to see better leadership. Is that what they were looking for? Were they looking for a leader to give that, that person purpose in what they're doing? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. You know, I, I kind of boil it down to, and again, it's hard to boil it down too much because you're going to overstate things. Yeah. But when I get down to the heart of it, what I feel like, I feel like millennials, especially in Gen Z too, uh, are driven in a way by a fear of insignificance. So not even maybe even a yearning for significance, but even more driven by the fear of being insignificant, of doing work that's insignificant. And so I think that plays out in many ways. So when I'm talking to leaders, uh, I'm saying, well, you can bring significance in in lots of different ways. And some of that could be through the relationships in the the workplace. So so that's been a change in leadership dynamics where a millennial or younger employee, they want to know their boss. They want to be able to ask their boss questions. They, be, they want to be able to talk or maybe an older generation, they just might want to say, just do your job and let's yeah. go home. Like, <laughs> don't really talk to me about your life. You know, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. Stuff like that. So, or it could be significance in the sense of, yeah, I want to do work that matters. Yeah. Uh, I want it to matter that, that I want my work to matter. And, um, and so that's where that, that fear of insignificance comes. And then again, when you tie in social media, where again, we're all trying to look like our life is significant, like we're doing significant things, we're living this kind of significant life. Yeah, I think that plays into that lens too, of then what success looks like. So it, it, it is a redefinition of sorts of what success might be, where maybe one generation, it wasn't as much about a fear of insignificance. It was just a, you know, the Great Depression era, it was a fear of feeding my family. Like I just, exactly. I want to. You know, and that, 
and there was a lot to that and they, and they worked really hard yeah. uh, saved everything you know because of that feeling of I want to feed my family so we see that ebb and flow between generations but I think at the heart we really do want that significance and we're afraid that we're not going to achieve it yeah and the way I look at it too is you know with you know, the great people that went through the great depression and kind of, as we evolved throughout that, it is cool to see the evolution towards, I have to do this to make money for my family because things are really tough right now. It's, it is cool to see that kind of evolve now to, uh, I want to find something I love to do and be home with my family. You know, you kind of still see that mix where millennials still want to make money. They still want to, be home with their families, but they also want to do something that they love. So I I almost look at it as those people and the, and the boomers have now paved the way for millennials to do that. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's something millennials should just kind of look back and be thankful about too, and and realize that it was kind of paved for them to be able to do this. You know, we saw those generations, you know, and if we can marry, if uh, marry some of these traits together, like, yeah. Um, I think it's great for our generation to have big dreams and goals. Like, I think it's, I think that's important to have hope and to, and to be able to have this vision of this is what I want to do with my life, but then also have the big dreams, but then also be very perseverant and very faithful in the small yeah. and to not despise the small beginnings because that's how it's going to look. And it's not going to be anything that people care about. You know, I wrote, I wrote a lot of blogs and a lot of pages at six in the morning or late at night or whatever that nobody cared about. Like maybe my mom was reading and, and that was it. And I'd be like, mom, please don't leave comments like on the article. Yeah. To marry that, to marry the work at work ethic yeah. in a way. I, even, I wrote about this in my, I think in my 101 questions you need to ask in your twenties book. I wrote, I wrote about the story of uh, when I went out on this crazy hunt to find my grandpa's old pickup truck the 75 F-150 pickup truck that we used to go fishing in. So I had all these memories of this pickup truck. Uh, but once he passed away, uh, it was kind of a mystery. Where did this truck go? Like it was kind of lost. So I went on this journey to go find the truck and I found it in the back of a barn in my great uncle's farm that I used to, I grew up going to as a kid in Kansas. And it was in the back through my cousins. My, my cousins helped me found the back of the, the, the truck in this, in this barn. <laughs> But I remembered walking around with my cousins and we were at my great uncle Russell's farm. And, and I loved my great uncle Russell. I loved going out there and visiting him, going fishing and seeing all the cows. Uh, it was like a totally different experience. But as I was walking around with my cousins and they were sharing all these stories with me of, oh yeah, that barn, well, that got ripped down by a tornado. And then he rebuilt that. And then five years later, another tornado came and, and ripped it down again. And then he, he rebuilt it again. And then all these fences and all these fields and all these cows. And I just started understanding, like, like I think some, so, sometimes our generation can get stuck in this feeling of, oh, I want to do inspired work. I want to do stuff I'm passionate about. I want to do this thing where I feel so good. Like, it doesn't even feel like work, right? right. But as I was walking around, I'm like, wow, you know, I think sometimes the most inspired work we can do is to keep showing up and doing the work, even when we feel completely uninspired. You know, and, and so we're not chasing inspiration, we're doing the work. And then we know the inspiration is going to follow, it's going to be there, like we're going to get into it, and it's going to be fruitful. 
And um, so I tried to take that metaphor with me as I rescued my grandpa's truck. And I did get the truck, by the way, I was able to get it, fixed it up, drove it back to Colorado and all these like side highways, <laughs> not knowing if I was going to make it home or not. And I have the truck now in my front yard uh, and on the, and the street in the front. And I've used it a ton to pick up a lot of stuff, but, but it's always that memory. And I remember driving home um, from this trip and I'll, I'll wrap up the story here because I've talked too long about Kansas and this truck, but I remember <laughs> driving home and I remember being with my grandpa right when I was a kid and he would do the little wave to farmers as they would pass each other. It was like they were all in a club together, you know, like they all knew what it was like to work really hard. Uh, and so they had this common connection. And I remember driving home in the truck for the first time when I was driving at home. And these old time farmers were giving me the little, you know, the finger wave, you know, just kind of doing the wave. Uh, and it felt like I was a part of the I was a part of the club now. Yeah. Like and I had to own up to it and I had to work really hard to make sure that I was worthy of the, of the truck and being led in the club. Uh, so that became a metaphor for me. So I think if we bridge those things together from, you know, because different generations has has different positive attributes. Right. And that's the power of it is, is pulling that together um, and even learning from each other in that process, too. For sure. I agree with you on that. I um, I was actually talking to a buddy a week ago or so. And, you know, every morning when I run into this um, older gentleman at the gym, he's probably in his 70s. Um, every time he comes in and says hi to me, we, we know each other by name. And I kind of got to thinking about that a little bit. And that is something I think that's super important to take from that generation. Mm -hmm. It seems similar to what you're saying, but he, he, he came in, he wouldn't just be, you know, scrolling through his phone or, or reading the paper. He would come in, he'd look me in the eyes. He'd say, Hey, Trevor, and talk to me about, you know, the Gophers game the other night, or, and it made me think of, you know, that's how my grandpa was too. Mm. My, my grandpa's idea of having a good time was sitting out in his backyard on the patio, um, listening to the radio and having the twins game on the radio and just talking uh -huh. about whatever. And sometimes you weren't even talking. Sometimes you're just kind of hanging out. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode with Paul Angoni. This is part one and part two will be coming out next week. I hope you stay tuned and enjoy the rest of your day.